Hello, heroes. Welcome to Modifier. I'm your host, Megan Dornbrock. Heroes, this episode is bananas. I had the pleasure of chatting with award-winning games writer Bruce Cordell, who is just as sweet as he is talented. Bruce wrote for Dungeons & Dragons for many years, until 2013 when he joined Monty Cook Games to launch The Strange, a game based on his sci-fi novel. He's also one of three authors being highlighted in the current Monty Cook Kickstarter that we discuss in the back half of this episode, and is an expert on the cipher system, that magical set of mechanics that all Monty Cook games are based on. He patiently takes me through how the system works, which I think is definitely going to pique some interest if you haven't already had the pleasure of playing Numenera or The Strange. Full disclosure, I haven't directly played a Cypher System game yet either, but Heroes, this system speaks to me. I feel like I'm always looking for ways to get something more out of the games that I play to make them better or more complete in some way. Part of that quest is, of course, still figuring out who I am and what I respond to best as a player and as a GM, and who knows if that journey ever actually ends. But part of it is also finding a game that meets the needs I already know I have. And I think the Cypher system has real potential to be that for me and for other people. It's such a malleable system built to be modified and imposed upon, which, uh, if you haven't noticed, is totally my jam. I cite a review in our conversation that suggests the Cypher system blends together mechanically complex RPGs and the narrative flow of new school games, and I find that both accurate and really appealing. My first RPGs were Dungeons & Dragons, like so many other people, and I do have a fondness for those complex systems, even if that's not what I jump to play first these days. I'm finding myself drawn more to narrative games where players and GMs build stories together and dice rolling is almost non-existent. Both types of games have their strengths and they have their weaknesses, and the Cypher system somehow does blend those strengths together, giving you as much complexity as you might want in building your character and the world that you're going to play in, but allowing you to then get completely lost in this epic of your choice in a very narrative way. It's... It's witchcraft. Like, there's no other way to explain that how both of these things are possible in one system, but here they are. Plus, you get to build whatever kind of world you want. The system insists and encourages you to build whatever story you want to play in, from generic fantasy, sci-fi, horror, uh, to super specific worlds that already exist in books and movies like uh, Sherlock Holmes or Narnia. This stuff is made to be modded. It needs to be modded. It, it like, has to be modded to work. There isn't a basic cipher system game here. I love it when people find clever ways to get what they want out of other games and systems, but a game with modding and imagination in mind from the get-go makes me happier than I can even say. One quick thing, we experienced some technical difficulties around the midway point and had to pick up again later in the week. I think we did a pretty good job picking up where we left off, but we do have a, a moment or two of, wait, did we already talk about this? And it, it's totally justified, I promise. We both don't have goldfish brains or something like that. But let's get on to the interview so Bruce can expertly tell you more about how this system works and about the current Kickstarter. Well, cool. Thank you so much for, for getting up early and hanging out with me this morning. Oh, well, it's... It's not too early for me. It's a regular part of the workday. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. That makes me feel better. Why don't we... We're going to talk a lot about the Cypher system and the Kickstarter that's going on, um, but why don't you briefly give us a little bit of information about who you are and what you do at Monty Cook Games? Well, my name is Bruce Cordell, and I'm the senior designer at Monty Cook Games. Basically, 
it's my main job to write a lot of the material that uh, that we put out. I mean, there's a creative team. I'm a member of that creative team. Mm-hmm. But my duties are really focused on on writing. So you'll see my name on a lot of the material that comes out. I uh, obviously was very involved in The Strange uh, mm-hmm. because I was writing a science fiction book that, excuse me, that uh, uh, my friend Monty said, hey, why don't we make that into a game? And of course, that turned out to be a great idea. But uh, that's pretty much that's pretty much what I do at Monty Cook Games. I I write hopefully very cool stuff. Yeah, it is very cool stuff. And you're not a stranger to writing for games or game writings by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, so when you were writing that that science fiction novel that that Monty liked so much, was there something in your brain thinking, well, maybe this could be a game? Yeah, actually. In my head, in my plan, I left Wizards because I wanted a little bit more freedom to do what I wanted and have control over my own destiny. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'll write this, I'll write the science fiction book, and maybe I'll kickstart it once I've finished it, you know, for the novel. And then once that's done, maybe I'll write a game, you know, system based on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, obviously, that's got all turned around now. <laughs> but according to the Kickstarter that we're running right now, it is funded that I will finish this novel finally. And now that I have a deadline, I will actually finish it. Deadlines, turns out, are important for me. They help. Yeah, (laughs) I found that too. So since since you're going to have to finish it, I guess this is a a good time to ask too. The the system, or the rather the game that came out of it, The Strange, how how faithful is it to the story that you're writing? Or have you kind of changed it now that you've made the game? Yes, there has been some changes because Monty and I both wrote The Strange together and he had a lot of great ideas he brought into the system and to the world, which required some adaptation. On the other hand, this was kind of the founding novel. I mean, this novel brought up the entire Strange, so it wasn't like I had to totally revise or anything. I just had to add in a little bit of uh, detail here and there or, or change some uh, some of the details that I'd already had encoded so the the strange for those who don't know is sort of a lot of games all at once, isn't it? You can you can kind of do anything in the strange. Yeah, our idea for the strange. Well, my original idea for the strange was a lot more of a science fiction centric uh, concept, but it turned out that once you threw in the idea that this dark energy network around Earth might be in principle with. Uh, kind of sort of a higher quantum uh, human consciousness mm-hmm. that anything that had enough resonance in human consciousness, like stories, myths, movies, novels, comic books might actually become a limited world, uh, a fully created limited world, which basically allows you to travel into alternate worlds in a way. They're not like alternate dimensions in the normal sense. They're actually seeded from actual books that kind of spring up and become their own reality. So if you wanted to, you could travel or accidentally travel, depending mm-hmm. on the game that your game master is running, to the world where Moriarty and Sherlock Holmes are fighting, or Frankenstein, or, you know, Star Wars, or Call of Cthulhu-type uh, <laughs> stories. So pretty much it's a wide-open world, and the thing that ties it all together is that on Earth, several people who are quickened to this concept and are able to translate into these alternate worlds um, are a little concerned that it's leaving uh, Earth a little too wide open to uh, the strange itself, which is this dark energy Mm -hmm. network, and disaster could result. So one of the things you do 
when you're adventuring is try and hopefully uh, protect the earth from uh, influences that could eventually swamp it, essentially. Oh, interesting. So this, so the strange sort of has an effect on the real world too. Yeah, my so my original concept was that why have you heard of um, uh, the question um, why are you know why have we never seen any other aliens out there in the world right mm-hmm. what, what's, what's, yeah. why is that and uh, I wanted to write a science fiction book that uh, would answer that question in in a particular way and in my concept there was a a alien race you know many billions of years ago near the beginning a few billion years after the beginning of this universe that created a, a transport system which allowed them to uh, upload themselves into this energy dark energy network and then print themselves out again somewhere else right mm-hmm. and so there was this but something you know it worked well probably for a billion years or so mm-hmm. but then something went <clears throat> really wrong <laughs> and uh it kind of started exploding out of control we see this huge artifact in our own universe of dark energies expanding the universe faster and faster no one understands really what it is and anytime in my conception that a a world gains sentience and it uh, does certain things like it uses high energy experiments of a high enough energy level or it figures out uh, quantum computing in a way that we haven't quite figured out yet here on Earth, it kind of pings the Stark Energy Network. And what that mm-hmm. does is it causes these entities which have been living or you know co- uh, existing within this medium for however long to kind of swarm up this link that's created and uh, basically consume that particular world. And oop, that's one more sentient civilization that is oh, destroyed. Yeah. Earth shares a special, it has a special link with the strange and it's protected in a way from direct contact with the dark energy network by all these limited alternate worlds seeded from, like I said, the power of human imagination. So all these worlds that exist around the earth also protect it. Oh, very cool. (laughs) To go on and on for a long time. Yeah. No, that sounds great. I'm... I have to admit, like the strange is is the the half of this system that I'm less familiar with, and it sounds really cool. But like you say, it is the cipher system, right? It uses mm-hmm. the exact same underlying rule set as Numenera yes. and any of the other worlds uh, created. <laughs> Was that the idea from the start when Monty approached you about doing a game? Did he know, okay, we're going to use the cipher system, or did you guys try some other stuff first? Uh, he said, "What would you like to use? Anything? Anything's open." And I said, "Well." I think we should use Numenera. And he said, I think we should too. I was, you know, but so that it was, a, it was a very quick conversation. Cool. So cool. Just, he was just being nice about it. <laughs> I, yeah, probably. Yeah. But ultimately it's worked out. You know, we obviously have developed the company over time and it turns out the cipher system is a very important aspect of that, of uh, what we're doing. Yeah, very much so. I, I like that it was that easy, <laughs> at least initially. Uh-huh. That's cool. How, how difficult was it adapting it to, to the strange because I mean Numenera has lots of possibilities of course there's lots of things that you can do with it but but the strange seems to open that up even wider I think the brilliance of the cipher system is that it doesn't try and model the world too precisely and because of that it allows you to to have game mechanics that cover a much broader range of possibilities um, and, and, and so to answer the question very succinctly, it wasn't very hard at all to, uh, <laughs> to create rules for, um, different, uh, uh, genres, I guess, so to speak within the strange. Um, 
it's uh it's more narrative more of a necessary narrative twist um than necessarily mechanical there are some mechanical things that are unique to the strange just as there will be mechanical um, elements unique to each of these new worlds that we're creating um, for the current cipher system but the underlying rule system itself is like i said just so uh, broad and, and not so precise that it really ties your hands yeah was was working uh, i guess did the strange sort of help lever leverage you guys into um putting out the cipher system as its own standalone core you know core rule book or was that something that was you're kind of toying with before uh i'm sh i think it probably led us toward that that idea to, you know when yeah. when the strange came out i don't think we had any sort of grand plan <laughs> but once the strange did come out using the exact same rule system but it had a whole unique suite of foci and descriptors mm -hmm and so on, and basically treated all these different worlds, it did seem kind of like a reasonable step to say, hey, let's, what if we stripped away all the setting mm -hmm. and all the specifics and created this rule set and then had chapters that, you know, kind of delved into different genres. The Strange doesn't call them genres. The Strange call, basically has laws that each of these worlds operate under, which are standard physics, mad mm -hmm. science, mm -hmm. uh, magic. Uh, things like that, but uh, cool. cipher system more just refers to them as genre, like you would expect science fiction, fantasy, horror. Okay, yeah, it, it's keeping them a little more vague, which yeah. is helpful. Yep, I was just going to say, yeah, it keeps it more vague to allow you as the as the game master, or game designer, to um, specifically give it the spin you want to give it when you are creating your your world or your adventure or whatever. Cool. I I was reading the information that was on the Kickstarter. And it sounded like this this rule book just kept getting bigger and bigger the more you worked on it. Um, <laughs> is was it difficult kind of keeping things vague or you know to to some extent when you are writing a uh, a, a focus um, uh, some of them can be pretty vague like um, never says die is a is a kind of a focus which basically means that you just have a lot of fortitude and you're not going to give in to adversity, which gives you, you know, additional might and gives you the ability to have resources in the face of, 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 of a threat. Mm -hmm. So some of those can be pretty vague, but you know, a few of them like pilot starships, you know, that you're probably going to find that specifically in some sort of science fiction genre. On the other hand, you know, we, we give a lot of tools and advice on how to take something that seems very specific and kind of twist it around and say, well, you know, this could be uh, pilot starship may be too specific, but you know, maybe you have this uh, fantasy campaign setting where um, this is not actually true in Gods of the Fall, but you have gods that are flying around in in chariots of of the sun or something like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's something you could use and, and just twist it around to make it work. Okay. So there's there's a you know the GM is encouraged to as in you know I guess any RPG, but but it really is encouraged to. Uh, make things work for herself to to make to make it a fun game. Awesome. I guess also in <laughs> in relation to how how big and all encompassing this system has gotten, um, there's a couple of reviews that you guys have have pulled some some blurbs from that I really like listed on the Kickstarter. And the one that caught my attention was I think the Escapist. 
mentions that the the cipher system it it does a, a job of combining the the complex mechanics of an RPG system with like new school narrative. And I saw that and I went, okay, I know new school narrative. I've played a lot of those games recently. Um, and I, of course, I came into the hobby with more complex systems, Dungeons and Dragons, and all those sorts of things. But then I see the page count of of over 400 pages, and I have to admit, it does make me a little nervous that it's going to be a lot of complex mechanics. Uh, see, I guess you know that is something we are con- we know about that that's so many pages, and yet we claim it's yeah. such a simple system. Yeah. But the rules for using the game are actually very short. It's the 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 most of the page count in uh, the cipher system rulebook, for instance, is are these foci. So the cipher system game is basically a descriptor, a noun, uh, and, and, and your focus. So you're, I'm a strong uh, uh, fighter type, say a glaive in Numenera, or a vector mm-hmm. in the Strange, mm-hmm. or a warrior in the cipher system who you know never says die, or pilots starships, or calculates the incalculable. And so mm-hmm. these foci uh, take up quite a bit of the book because we have such a broad range of them as possibilities. So they're they're not they're not things that you have to under they're not mechanical cool. <laughs> they are mechanics but yeah. they're kind of story based modifications for your character and the same is true for your type which uh, in uh, the cipher system I th- there are four different types and when you build your character basically you have six we call them tiers um, mm-hmm. other systems call things like this levels uh, and as you go up each tier you have an opportunity to choose between you know five and ten probably different abilities. Uh, that you gain as you gain that tier. And so that takes up some space. But the core of the system is simply um, your descriptor. You could be strong, fast, smart, intelligent, doomed, um, mad. You can have some negative descriptors. And that kind of just gives you a very small modification. And that that does take up a lot of the book, but it's not adding to the complexity. It's ag- adding to your uh, your choices as a, as a character. And it gives the GM um, material to help you know, fashion a world as well. Nice. So it's it's a lot of so you character, be, character building. Good, yeah. Yeah, so you shouldn't be uh, scared of that. Okay. So that's not the word you, you used. But, uh. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel better. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I actually did look through, a friend lent me their PDF so I could look through it a little bit. Um, and I kind of like it as a PDF. I don't. I don't have that visual reminder of, of just just how many more pages there are. <laughs> so, yeah. So <laughs> the basis of the system, though, is that you, as the GM, say I have to just rate a task from mm-hmm. one to ten. Yeah. Uh, one being really really easy, and ten being impossible. And, I liked that a lot. And that's and that's it, right? The player may can be trained to try and reduce the task difficulty by one, or have an asset you know, the perfect tool or, you know, someone could be helping mm-hmm. to reduce the difficulty. And then there's no, and then you just roll against the target number, which is set by that difficulty. And that's just three times the difficulty. So if it's one, nice. if it's a difficulty of one, that's a three on a D20 or higher, but, you know, difficulty two, it's a six or higher. So it's, you don't, you know, when you're rolling your dice, you're not adding or subtracting a lot of modifiers. You always know mm-hmm. what your number, what the, well, you generally know what the yeah. number is and you don't have to go, Oh, that's a 15, 16, 17. You know? So mm-hmm. I like yeah. that a lot too. It speeds play quite a bit. Right. And, and having uh, an effect on that target number instead of sitting there and rolling and then adding, okay, I have this weapon that does this and I have this extra thing like that. That's really appealing 
Yeah. And yeah. It, it kind of feels more like, like, yeah, it's nice to kind of add those numbers in and, and finally accomplish something in other systems, but actually seeing it make the task easier, mm -hmm. that feels, for whatever reason, that, that feels cooler to me. Oh, good. Like, like, oh, I, I made it easier. I'm so, I'm so good at this thing, or I have these tools, that it's, it's even easier now. <laughs> um, so, I don't know, that's just me. But Yeah, no, it, it's worked for me too. Certainly coming from years of writing D&D and, uh, <laughs> you know, various editions, every edition of D&D added on more numbers for you to, to think about. And so Yay. at first I was like, oh, I don't know about this system. I like adding numbers. I've gotten so good at it. Uh -huh. uh, but uh, now I much prefer uh, the Cypher system. Yeah, and you get all the different kinds of dice that you have to roll in D&D &D and Cypher systems with just a D20. Um, there's a few other opportunities for, for rolling dice, but it does okay. reduce the number. Basically, yeah, the D20 for task resolution, um, I think the GM might use a D10 for rolling percentile sometimes on tables. Mm. Like, oh, what's what's a random effect I might want to pull out here for, you know, or a random cipher, uh, random, you know, uh, object you might find, that kind of thing. And when a player uh, regains some uh, health, um, she, he or she can um, roll a d6. And uh, there, there are various times in the game where you make a recovery roll. Mm -hmm. Basically, you can four times a day. First time is basically catch your breath. It takes just a round. Next time you do it in the day, it's 10 minutes. The next time an hour. And then the last time is like 10 hours, right? You sleep overnight oh. or, or have yeah. to have a big rest. And basically, you, you roll a d6 and add your tier to that. Um, and that's how many, um, how much health, how many points you add back to your, your, your pools, which are, which store your health in the game. But yeah. Nice. So yeah, not too many dice, but, uh, a few. Yeah. No, that, that, that's a nice variety. I think. No D12s, no D8s. <laughs> that's right. We all, no D4s. almost never use D12s anyway, which, mm, oh well. <laughs> yeah, really it was just kind of an exercise and what can we do with the we need to use the D12. What weapon yeah. will we put <laughs> on the D12 to make sure we can use it? So you make your character through a Mad Lib, which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I like that it's written there right in the character sheet too, like phrased exactly that way to kind of mm -hmm. help you out. And that's, um, I was listening to an actual play of No Thank You Evil, which is, <sighs> uses the same kind of structure, right? Like it's... It does. Um uh, it, but it it kind of layers it in based on the age of mm -hmm. your audience. So instead of having you know all three of these things, you know you start off with just like the type in Numenera, right? That would be the glaive, or mm -hmm. in Cypher System would be the warrior. Um, but in in a, a No Thank You Evil, that might be your only thing. You might not have a descriptor, and you might not have a focus. You might just be you know a princess mm -hmm. or a um, yeah a, whatever a robot. I. Um, I don't actually have my physical copy of No Thank You Evil yet. Can you believe that? That's. <laughs> I bet you I, I get it. I can't today, believe though. that. That's. Oh my gosh. I bet okay. you I have to go. I'm going to go on site today and um, we have a creative meeting today with um, okay. Monty, Shauna, and, and Dennis. And uh, mm -hmm. I think they have my copy there for me. So I will. Oh, good. Finally get my physical copy. Yay. <laughs> I, I, I really. It sounds like such a fun game. And I, I am so excited to like steal some friends' kids and play with. Like that's one of my favorite things is, is seeing kids play these kinds of games. So to have it better suited, like the material, you know, suited to their level is is nice. And that was the first thing I thought of when I saw that that's how character creation happens. Is that yeah, it kind of looks like a Mad Lib, you know? How this is not hard to do. 
No, totally. It was it was interesting t- to f- uh, crowdfund this um, because it turns out that not a lot of people who I guess are in the age group of people that are playing these games have children. You know, some do, a percentage of them do. Yeah. But now that the game is actually produced and people are seeing it out in the world, I think a lot of people are finally going, oh, now I get it. <laughs> so. Yeah. I think we'll we'll see a lot of um, good things happen with No Thank You Evil. Oh, cool. I am excited. But I wanted to ask, in the Cypher system, the core book, the, the types, there are four types that things have been distilled down to, the, like the warrior and the explorer and um, what have we got? Adept. I think speaker is the other one. How How difficult is it to kind of pare all these character possibilities down into such a small number of, of distilled like archetypes or is that difficult? Um, uh, it's, uh, I guess it's, it to some extent is difficult. On the other hand, you know, even within uh, the warrior or, you know, the explorer seeker speaker that we provide such kind of a, a list of potential abilities that you might take. So you can create a build or you can, you can kind of go a route you want to go within the character so we don't. So you don't feel so restrict. You don't feel restricted, and not every warrior is going to be like every other warrior, so to speak. Right. Um, I I guess you're asking me how difficult is it to distill. Um, you know, it, it, I mean, it requires some effort and thought and work and writing and and playtesting. I mean, it's definitely it's definitely a job. <laughs> yeah. Or or I guess have you did you find any kind of or come across any kind of archetype or or character possibility that was particularly hard to place? I think we went for the pretty the pretty straightforward ones that that we knew would appeal to the largest amount of people, right? Cool. I mean, you because because we're breaking off a raw, I guess. So in that sense, you know, someone mm-hmm. who fights, someone who talks, someone who explores and someone who Oh, local VoIP failure. I wonder what that means. I think we left off. We were talking a little in depth about the cipher system, and I think the last question we were working on was what what it was like uh, coming up with those four essential archetypes characters that the cipher system uses if if that was difficult at all or if there was uh, any types of characters you guys ran into that were particularly difficult to categorize so to be honest we had sort of created those characters uh kind of by having well first monty created the numenera characters mm-hmm. before i ever joined the cipher the team mcg and that was kind of a uh a warrior type class a um a jack of all trades type class, um, and a and a I guess you could call it a wizard type class, but you know within the parlance of Numenera, it's a nano, someone who understands the workings of the nano nanites that are seeded throughout the atmosphere. Um, and then in the strange, I, mean, I kind of did a similar route by creating a, a kind of a, a vector, a warrior slash athlete type class, mm-hmm. uh, someone who breaks all the rules called a paradox, which is I guess you could call the wizard. And then rather than having a uh, the jack of all trades sort of character. I had more of a spinner, I called this type of class, which was more of a talker to people. Uh, oh, kind okay. Of, 
kind of kind of meets the jack kind of spins things huh to use that term in a different sort of way that i you know this character class interacts with people or or machines kind of kind of gets in between the expectations and subverts people's expectations uh, by possibly lying to them or distracting them by telling them stories and you could distract a machine you know or a computer by hacking it by telling it stories too i guess or sending it too many packets so to speak yeah so that when the cipher system book came along it was it was pretty much it was a process and mainly monty took this on himself to take what was true in the various types that existed in these two books and kind of break them down to their essence and saying, if I strip away the story elements, what what is the basic nature of each of these classes? And that seemed pretty straightforward uh, uh, to, to my set to my senses. You know, once once we once we had already laid a lot of the groundwork in, in earlier books, and these are archetypes that that show up in many in many RPGs, right? Mm-hmm. And so the cipher system has the warrior type, um, and each of these 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 types. Um, have many different suggested names depending on the genre you'd like to use them in. But the basic, the basic essence of it is warrior. I think explore, I've been writing in so many different settings lately. I might yeah. even get this wrong. Explorer, which is kind of someone who, you know, ranges out speaker, mm-hmm. kind of like the spinner I was talking about and, uh, adept, I guess, yeah. which is be the wizard, uh, or sorcerer type style class or, you know, on an Earth's type thing, an investigator or you know, someone who's really good with computers. So depending on the setting, you can kind of see that, you know, you might say, well, of course I would choose an adept to be a wizard, but maybe if I'm on Earth, you know, maybe I would choose a speaker because that gets me more where I want to go. So kind of kind of depends on the setting to, to uh, for, you might accomplish similar things in different settings with different types. That's what I'm trying to say there. If I could cut out all the stumbling yeah. around. <laughs> no, that that's really cool. Cause I, I think we get trapped a lot in the um, warrior mage rogue kind of, these are the three things you could be thought process and, and seeing those different options for these characters. Like maybe exactly right. Like maybe the speaker would make a better wizard in this scenario than, than the one that mm-hmm. we think would that's, that's very cool. And that's uh, helped by all the descriptors that I know we talked about to take up a, a good portion of the book describing these different ways you can play these characters. That's true. I was um, also, so the descriptor is kind of this sort of like your attitude or your, I don't know, just something that's very true about your character in many different situations. Almost like, <clears throat> um, I was just writing a bunch. I was writing like uh, lonely and um, vigilant oh. and, um, yeah, so some of these can be um, kind of a negative sort of thing, doomed, you mm-hmm. know, so it's sort of a character hook, uh, role-playing thing to kind of hang off that doesn't always have to be positive. Of course, there's things like clever, fast, um, hardy, beneficent, <laughs> lawful. Mm-hmm. Beneficent is one that's uh, in my worlds of the uh, uh, gods of the false is sitting, right? It's a little bit more speaks to the setting. I am beneficent. Yeah. <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> I just wrote the young one just as a as a possible as a kind of a experiment, I guess, to see if I could pull it off. And it turns out you can pull it off pretty well with a descriptor, the way this descriptors work, because you can say, hey, yes, you maybe you have minus four in your might right coming out, and maybe you have an inability in doing physical tasks. But hey, you are curious, plus two to your 
intellect and you're resilient, maybe you're plus two to your speed and, you know, adults help you out. So in the situations where adults are around, you have a, you know, a step, um, a bonus to your bonus being the wrong word, but uh, you know, the difficulty yeah. of your, um, uh, tasks uh, to interact in a positive way with adults, you know, is, uh, decreased by one step. It's just, uh, so nice. suddenly we have the young descriptor and yeah, you could play a, you know, a 12 year old. Did we talk about that already? Yeah, if we nice. did, I apologize. I, nope. Nope. I okay. don't think we did. Um, All right. But uh, so there are there are lots of descriptors, like even in just the base cipher system. Um, oh, totally. Yeah, and and seeing how they kind of get more specialized in the in the games. Are there things people should keep in mind uh, if they want to create their own descriptors? If, if for some reason one of these one of these options doesn't quite do what they want, um, there are, there are some basic sort of uh, balance uh, rules for creating a descriptor. Um, you don't want to. Basic and aesthetically, you don't want to probably give out too many like straight up powers, I guess, or abilities yeah. where you're actually, you kind of find those more than in types and in um, uh, your foci. Uh, and there are, yeah, there's basically rules to like, this is kind of the amount of stuff you could give away in descriptors. And these are the, the kinds of things you would give away. And if you want to, you know, go whole hog and give away more than that, you have to balance that with inabilities. Uh, and the young inabilities, of course, I was talking about, you know, just sucking away your um, uh, might and your mm -hmm. uh, ability to withstand uh, damage or accomplish things uh, that adults could do just because they're smaller. Um, and in a, in a perfect descriptor, those things don't necessarily feel like punishments. They feel like rewards for having the right descriptor. So yeah. your inability could be like, uh, if you're doomed, well, every so often you get a GM intrusion <laughs> That, you know, have something bad happens to you, but, you know, like you, I don't know, it kind of goes along with uh, um, your, your, your character descriptor, the kind of character you want to play. Perfect. And I do want to talk about GM intrusions um, in a second. The, I guess the other, the last thing um, I wanted to, to talk about, about actually building these characters is the skills. And that's something I think we come from other systems where we're used to seeing a list of predetermined skills that your character can take and advance in. Uh, and that's not the case here. Like, there are some suggestions. That's true. Uh, the skills are a little bit more free range, uh, I guess. You we have, a, we have a suggested list, but pretty much you can just decide for your character that you, if I want to be good in uh, schmoozing, you can say, that's my skill. I'm, I'm good in schmoozing. Or so you'd say you're trained. And by being trained in schmoozing anytime something comes up where the character says, Hey, I want to, you know, a situation may, you know, apply if you're trying to intimidate someone schmoozing is probably not the, the best, mm -hmm. uh, the best <laughs> skill to have. But the idea behind the way the skills are kind of more open-ended is that except for, except for the combat skills. So we're talking non-combat skills here. Uh, they're, they basically, because you can only be either trained or specialized, it's not something that is going to, um, make your character too good. You can have a lot of knowledge skills. You can have a lot of talking to people, good skills. You can have a lot of lockpicking skills. You can have a whole broad range, but it's not, I mean, you, I mean there are rules for kind of keeping it, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the realm of reasonability, yeah. uh, but it's not, uh, it's not something that has to be so precisely 
monitored because it doesn't honestly have that huge an effect on game balance in within the cipher system, I should say, mm-hmm. the way things work in the cipher system. Okay, so uh, so somebody who wants to come up with some skills, it's not important to be so specific, but they also don't want to be very general. Like there's kind of a there's just kind of a middle road. It sounds like. There certainly is a middle road. I mean, you could say, "Hey, I just want to be good. I want to be good at everything using my head." Right? That would be too broad, yeah. right? But you could say, "I want to have. I want to be good at puzzle solving." Yes, that is a great skill. Um, cool. And the GM, obviously, the cipher system is a system that relies upon the uh, the trust between the players and the GM, and you know, knowledge of the GM, trust in your GM that you're going to that he or she will. I'll let you apply your skill when it's reasonable to do so. Yeah. I do want to say one more uh, thing about the skills yeah. before I forget, which is like if you take schmoozing uh, because, you know, you've uh, uh, gained it here and that's the skill you've chosen uh, and you have a descriptor which gives you, um, you know, you have a, the you have training, say, in, in uh, persuasion. So that you can see that those sort of overlap and that's fine. That basically essentially means for situations where those situations overlap, you're specialized, which reduces the difficulty of tasks to schmooze or persuade people Ooh. if it by two steps. So it's specialization specialized is about is the highest you training you can gain in a skill. Other things can come into play like someone helping you mm-hmm. or you have an asset or the person is you know already other things might come to play, but the things that you can control directly um, in training, um, uh, two steps is, is the most you can bring to the, the table. Nice. I like that a lot. I guess we'll we'll jump right to GM intrusions are super interesting to me. I, uh, I've listened to a, a couple actual plays now of, of um, like Numenera and some of the other the Cypher system games and that GM intrusions and using XP as a narrative tool. It is uh it is pretty awesome because a lot of times in games uh GM will kind of nudge play in a particular direction and sort of feel guilty about it. I mm-hmm. mean in older in older games, I don't want to say older, but games that I've, you know, written for for many many oh, years yeah. and GM for D&D, you feel a little guilty if you do something that the rules uh, don't don't allow you to do, but you just do it anyway and say, "Oh, you know, you're you're rolling dice, and players can't necessarily see what you're doing." And you say, "Oh, look what happens! Yep. This thing happens." So I think the magic about one of the magic things about GM intrusions is that uh, it gives you a game mechanic to hang that on, and you know that's one of those building trust moments. I would say with the GM and the players, it's like, "Oh, the GM isn't screwing with us." Uh, the GM is actually using the GM intrusion mechanic to um, have this hole open in the wall and it's a doorway to something else. And that's a, I guess that's a second point I'll get back to about it doesn't always have to be bad. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that also bolsters this trust is that not only is it a mechanic that we all know and can agree upon, it's a mechanic where the GM gives you some XP. Yeah. And hey, look, I get some experience points for this interesting thing that's possibly bad happening to me and you know then i have two pieces of xp and i can give one to a friend or i have to give one to a friend uh, for any reason whatsoever and that kind of builds in a second step uh pc um excuse me a player um uh, community right it's like hey my friend sitting to my left Mm -hmm. here you helped me do this here's an xp or help me in the future or for whatever reason that's also kind of cool 
Yeah, I think that's a really lovely mechanic. There's uh, a couple, uh, you know, other systems where you can help reward each other, but I think that one's so directly, you know, I, I recognize this cool thing that you did in, in play or, uh, you know, that you helped me out earlier kind of thing. Like I, I can really, really reward you for that. That's really nice. Mm -hmm. And I was going to say uh, that often the GM mechan uh, intrusion will be that, oh, look, there's two more of these creatures and you thought they were done or, Oh, you were knocked off the ledge, and oh, you just when you thought you you know you caught yourself, that breaks away. GM intrusion, whatever, mm -hmm. right? Or maybe it's maybe the encounter itself is a GM intrusion, but it, it doesn't have to necessarily be something bad happening to your character. It can just be changing the story in an interesting way. Um, so a GM intrusion might be look, if a, a castle that travels through time just appears <laughs> in front of you, right? Is that good or bad? I don't know, but it's it's certainly a GM intrusion. Ooh, that's that's an interesting one. <laughs> I'm so curious now. Uh, cool. <laughs> yeah, let me see what's in this castle. Let's go take a look. Yeah, who who couldn't resist going in and seeing what's up with that castle now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is it from the future or from the past? And then the namesake of this system. What's a cipher? So a cipher is a one-use item that changes. That is sort of a power-up, but not a power-up in the sense that you're player always has that available. It's just like something you find, you can use, and then it's gone. And it kind of allows for these, uh, basically it allows these these um, fun things to happen to your character, your character to have capacities <laughs> that, that she wouldn't normally have, but it, then it doesn't can't give that character the capacity to do that forevermore, right? It's like, oh, I don't, it's not like a spell I learned, and now I can cast Disintegrate forever mm -hmm. and possibly... You continue to accumulate these things over time, but it's like, I can cast Disintegrate once, and if I do it, you know, right here, uh, wow, that was a great fun moment, but, you know, maybe I'll find a different cipher later that allows me to breathe underwater or <clears throat> talk to this alien or become invisible or walk through a wall, right? Whatever, right? It's yeah. just these weird things, you know, depending on the setting, mm -hmm. um, but even on, in Earth, in a horror setting, these ciphers might be, if it just doesn't work to have these sort of magical things around, mm -hmm. We kind of, in the cipher system, we talk about there being subtle ciphers, and these are kind of like inspirations or things like that. So maybe uh, I'm going to take, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take fortitude from what I've just seen, and now, you know, I have plus one armor, and I, mm. my uh, intellect rolls are better for, you know, uh, ten minutes or whatever, things like that. You can kind of um, tailor these things to the setting, so they're not just, you know, turning invisible in a completely in a Earth, where there's no magic, would be like, well, that's kind of weird. Why would I have a cipher for that? But, you know, having fortitude or being stronger or being really convincing mm -hmm. or um, being, you know, sprinting faster, you know, these sorts of things are the kind of ciphers you might find in a completely modern setting where there's no supernatural elements whatsoever. But you know what? Who plays games like that, yeah, really? Right. <laughs> and of course, there's Cthulhu at the end, right? So that, that explains mm -hmm. why you can find a cipher, you turn it visible. And maybe you lose some sanity. Yeah. Oh, wait, you, that's a different yeah, game. You definitely do. <laughs> Uh, game mechanicals. In in situations like that, it sounds like our the ciphers might not even be tangible items, right? Exactly, oh. right. They're, the the subtle ciphers are are intangible. That's really cool. And did they they just show up anywhere? How do they? How do we find those? Well, those are more like I mean, in the same way that the GM you know allows you to find uh, physical objects, which are ciphers. Um, the GM will basically award subtle ciphers. Uh, saying, oh, okay, you've had an, you've had this encounter. Here's some, basically it's a little bit more, uh, in the open of like, I'm awarding you, um, 
these these three. So each of you gets a subtle cipher, cool. right? And done. Yeah. <laughs> Move on. I like that. Like a, and, and it's an inspiration. Like if you're playing a superhero game, maybe they're called inspirations. Ooh. If you're playing a uh, in a game where there's gods, maybe they're blessings, right? So it it kind of you can tailor these things so they're not just like, well, that's weird. It's like, oh, okay, it goes along with with the setting. Nice. So is there anything else about the cipher system in particular that you think we should talk about or that makes it a particularly good system to basically drop anything on top of? Like, I'm I, I'm already making plans, I'll be honest, <laughs> the, the things I know I want to drop on top of this system. I think one of the best things about the game um, that, that we haven't talked about yet is that the GM doesn't roll any dice. Oh, yeah. The players roll the dice. If, they're, if a creature is attacking them, the players roll... Usually, you know, to get put away from a physical attack, a speed defense roll. Mm-hmm. And if they're attacking, they just roll their attacks normally. Uh, and, you know, if the creature is trying to attack them with some sort of mental blast or whatever, if the players are trying to open a door or solve a puzzle, it can all be narratively handled. But if there's a difficulty involved, the, the players do all the rolling. And that, it, you know, when you if you come from a game where you're used to rolling, that may sound a little, like, wrong to you mm-hmm. at first. But if you actually sit down... You know, with your notes in front of you and you have that uh, realization, wow, I don't have to worry about the dice. I don't have to look for them. I have to roll. I have to, it just, it kind of frees you up to just really follow the flow of the story a little bit more and come up with some cool GM intrusions, yeah. right? And allows you to kind of craft a slightly better story um, to uh, to the players. It's almost like, um, I'm going to try for a metaphor that's going to fail here, but <laughs> if you are, you know, if, if you go... Cursive writing, they say, you're saving enough time over the period of writing a note that, you know, you've saved, you know, a minute, perhaps, or more, depending on how long, Mm -hmm. right? It's the same sort of thing for um, uh, not rolling dice as the GM. You save so much time over the course of an encounter that you feel more relaxed and more easygoing, and it's just an easier game to GM in general. It's far more easy to to GM. Well, I guess that's true for many, a variety of reasons. There's not a lot of... The, much of the crunchiness has been um, stripped away uh, for more of a, uh, an open uh, model of, of, of the world. Yeah. But not rolling dice is one of those aspects. And that's a wonderful aspect. That is definitely one of the things that's very appealing to me. I, I always feel bad uh, having my players wait for me to do math, you know? So I'm, oh, I'm right. not the fastest yep. under pressure at, at, at dice rolling math, so... That's very. Well, that's true. And speaking of of not doing math, um, when you roll your dice as a player, you're not adding anything to that roll, mm-hmm. right? It's you may have you may have told the GM, "Hey, I'm I'm specialized in persuading," so that roll lowers the difficulty by two. Yep. But that's 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 the math you've yeah. done, and the GM knows if it's you know a, a difficulty three. And and your player says, oh, "I'm specialized in persuading." Oh, it's difficulty one, so a player only needs to get a th- you know a three or higher yeah. on 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 the on the die roll, and um, it's it, it makes things pretty pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can handle those numbers. <laughs> All right, cool. We actually did get a listener question. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, uh, Dominic Wandering Bishop on Twitter wants to know the strangest genre mashup you've ever seen in a game of the strange. I think the strangest genre mashup was one where, so in the strange, just in case anyone's not familiar, worlds of fiction uh, basically are seeded into the strange and, and become their own little limited mm-hmm. worlds, right? And fiction can include both novels and movies and comic books, whatever, right? Any sort of fiction, myths. 
there was a, uh, a story, I'm not sure of all the particulars, but involved going to find the fictional version of Sherlock Holmes and then fighting up, um, teaming up with him, the players, finding him so they could team up with him against another version of Sherlock Holmes that showed up in the movies, uh, played by a recent actor, maybe Benedict Cumberbatch, mm-hmm. uh, and fighting him who had himself become quickened to the knowledge of this, this world's, these ultimate worlds, and so had gone into the Star Wars universe oh, no. to awaken his force powers. And so it was kind of a, a double meta Sherlock Holmes meets Star Wars uh, world in the, in the strange. So it sounded pretty wacky to me. Yeah, that sounds good. And uh, I don't know, self-aware Sherlock only rings Star Trek for me, so... I think that's where, uh, I would, right. where we would have gone. That's, but that's really good. He does not need force powers. <laughs> this, this is what by uh, GM uh, James Walls. I'm not sure what his Twitter handle is. It might be James Walls, but uh, <laughs> he's a, he's been a big. Uh, uh, he's done a lot of fun. Um, he oh, live. I live for crits. I think is his um, his Twitter handle, and he does a lot of strange um, games and and discusses them in his blog. So I, I find that. Very entertaining. Oh, cool. And fun. Yeah, I bet Dominic would get a kick out of that. I think I would do. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, Kickstarter. Monty Cook is doing a Kickstarter. Can you tell us a little bit about That's, that? I certainly can. So, turns out we are doing um, for this month, most of this month, maybe a little bit into April. I think I think it ends on April 1st, yep. a Worlds of the Cypher System Kickstarter. And so, we're using the Cypher System that we've just been talking mm-hmm. about. And we're Kickstarting at least to begin with, uh, three uh, core, three new settings. And um, these are settings which you could use in the Cypher system, and or for the Strange, for that matter. These could all be recursions in the Strange. One of them is uh, called Unmasked, and it's essentially where players be- are become sort of superheroes. They become super anyway, but only when they put on their masks. But they, they're kind of damaged in a way by the world. And so there's some sort of psychological um, undertones here that could be a little dark and interesting. Mm-hmm. And usually uh, these are like, you know, teenagers, right? Um, that, that are the uh, player characters in Unmasked. So that's sort of an edgy sort of look. I think the designer Dennis Detweiler said, imagine it's uh, a, a movie of the X-Men that's been directed by Stanley Kubrick. That's <laughs> So I was like, oh, cool. Yeah. And we have um, Predation, which is um, a setting where player characters are apparently these people who have uh, been um, land. Uh, they've they've been locked into, they've lost is the word I'm huh? looking for, in time, yeah. right in the Cretaceous, right before that uh, killer um, asteroid uh meteor meteorite when it hits the earth it destroys all the dinosaurs and all life on earth and they have advanced technology so they are trying to create this world for themselves and who knows maybe try and escape but in the meantime they're genetically modifying dinosaurs mm-hmm. and do a lot of crazy stuff with their tech um and uh making a world for themselves in uh in the cretaceous um and uh you know riding dinosaurs awesome um the last the first and the last one is Gods of the Fall, which is essentially a fantasy, epic fantasy setting where uh, the realm of the gods um, called Elanitar, uh, but you can think of it as heaven, basically um, materialized in the real world, smashed down on the world, creating this huge, almost like, oh, I guess a meteorite now that I think about it, creating this huge disaster 
uh, and of course, killing all the gods and sending the world into this um, dark ages. And it's been uh, about uh, 40 some years since that happened. And now the PCs realized that uh, sparks of divinity are awakening in them themselves and they can kind of, uh, be, they can rise up and become the new gods and maybe <laughs> save the world from the shadow that it's fallen into. And in Gods of the Fall, I can tell you that the ciphers are actually the shattered bits of heaven of Alanatar that have scattered all over the oh. world, right? So if you find a cipher, it's kind of like a crystallized, uh, it's come out of solution, I guess, of, uh, of heaven, right? Broken heaven. That's really cool. Yeah, that's fun. So that's, uh, we have an, we have a stretch, we have a several such stretch goals yeah. that I'm meeting. And one of them is my original novel for The Strange Woo. to, uh, finally get that out there. So, and that's been funded. So I'm very excited about it. Cool. That. Now you have to write it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's written. I mean, I actually, I finished the first draft. I'm almost finished with draft 1.2 cool. to make all the, uh, updates that after Monty and I wrote The Strange RPG together. And I think uh, that'll go, and then I'll get it, you know, go to a, my a developmental editor, who I think is going to be Susan Morris, and uh, then I'll get a chance to write the actual second draft. Awesome. Moving forward. Yay. Yeah, it's very, very exciting. Cool. And one of the other stretch goals that looked pretty interesting are these asset cards. And that one's been unlocked, I think, too, right? That has yeah. been. Has you been guys unlocked. Are tearing through and, them. <laughs> <laughs> assets are one of the things I was talking about when. Um, so if a player can be trained or specialized, mm -hmm. other things can come into play to make uh, a task be better, right? You might have the perfect tool. Someone may help yeah. you. Um, and, you know, it's easy to come up with like two or three of them, but then the asset cards might allow you to um, uh, allow a GM to have additional ways. So you just give the player these assets cards. Hey, you have this asset cool. um, available to you. So, yeah, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of fun. I don't know if you've played with, with cards Mm -mm. The cipher system, but we we use a lot of like XP is handed out, and if you can physically hand out XP to a player on a card, and they mm -hmm. pass that their two XP one to their other player, it's kind of cool, right? It kind of gives you this yeah. tactile sense of actually getting a reward uh, for your GM intrusion. Um, it, it just alters play subtly in kind of a, a pleasing manner. You know, the human brain it, it likes. It likes things tactile. It likes things analog. Even mm -hmm. though we're so digital, it, there is a difference when things are tactile. So that's oh, yeah. that's why we provide cards. Very nice. So there's lots of different levels to back at where you can get ebook, PDF versions of of these adventures and the cipher system. I saw there that's a on some of these reward levels too. Getting that core book. Mm -hmm. um, these cards are coming with with a lot of them. It looks like uh, the novel that we talked about. There's there's all kinds of good stuff to go look at. Like many Kickstarters, there's lots of levels um, that you can um, back at. You know, if you just want to get a book or you just want to get a PDF. Mm -hmm. But of course, you can back at levels that give you all the book books, all the PDFs, or all the print books. And those are uh, more pricey. But mm -hmm. as the stretch goals unlock and more and more books and items and objects are added to those, um, all oh, the, yeah. all the things stretch goals, they obviously become more, more enticing. So, um, yep. I'm, I guess when, I'm not sure when this, um, podcast is going to release, but you should take a look at what has actually been unlocked compared to what we started off with and see if that doesn't entice you to think like, wow, maybe a lover of all books is the package for me. So mm -hmm. take a look. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to, this should come out uh, the 24th of March. So we should be, there should be another week or so. Oh, that's a Kickstarter. That's yeah. perfect timing. Yeah, it's like we planned that. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, cool. So there's going to be links in the show notes to the Kickstarter and to Monty Cook Games. 
And where can folks find you online? Uh, they can find me at um, just a, a Google search for Bruce Cordell. will pull up my blog and my Twitter and anything else. So yeah, tw- I'm Bruce Cordell on Twitter and brucecordell.com on the internet. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's easy enough to, to look cool. at me anywhere. That is helpful. Thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and thanks for hanging out and chatting with me twice now. So. That's right. Thanks, Megan. I appreciate yeah. you taking the opportunity to chat with me to begin with and then Absolutely. extending the effort to finish <laughs> the conversation now. So thank you. Huge thanks again to Bruce for taking the time to talk to me and for rolling with our difficulties. If you have questions for him, he's been really active on both Twitter and the Kickstarter. So go check him out. Go ask him stuff. As for the Kickstarter, which I have backed, and you should too, they are funded, but there are so many great stretch goals yet to reach, and more goodies to come, I'm sure. Right now, they're a few thousand dollars away from a stretch goal I'd really very much like to have for my not-so-secret secret project, which they've titled Expanded Worlds. In case the three world settings at the core of the Kickstarter aren't enough for you, this stretch goal gives us a new book with expanded rules, advice, character options, creatures, um, all that kind of stuff, and, and more for creating your own setting, which I think we can get to really easily with your help. Like we mentioned in the interview, there are lots of levels and ways to get exactly what you want from this Kickstarter. Uh, but if you're just interested in the cipher system, and I don't blame you, that is already out now in the Monty Cook store in both print and PDF formats. Uh, the PDF is like $15 and it looks amazing and it has everything you need to start your first cipher system game. If you need inspiration, OneShot had Darcy Ross run a game of Numenera that's a great, fun, and funny introduction to the system. If you're not a convert after hearing Darcy's enthusiasm, then I don't know what'll get you. Heroes, if you do back this Kickstarter or jump into the Cypher system in any way, let me know. I'm so excited to hear about the worlds you create with it and the adventures that you have. Okay, I know I'm cutting it close on this, but if you're not doing anything on Saturday, March 26th at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific... Consider tuning in to Eric Volgaris' Twitch stream to watch live as I play in, in an all-lady team of inspectors with Alex Roberts, Hannah Schaefer, and Darcy Ross. Links to the stream will be in the show notes and on Modifier's Twitter, as well as links to the YouTube recording when they're available. I hope you'll join us. You can find Modifier on Twitter at ModifierPodcast, or check out the headquarters at ModifierPodcast.tumblr.com. Feel free to reach out over email with questions, comments, or contribution suggestions to modifierpodcast at gmail.com. Modifier is proud to be part of the OneShot Podcast Network, an amazing family of RPG podcasts that includes shows like Talking Tabletop. Jim McClure interviews industry leaders and cool folks every week in a true celebration of gaming. Modifier's theme music was created by my favorite Bothan, Cat Greenfield, whose myriad talents are on display at catgreenfield.com. Next time on Modifier, we get a lawyer. Priyanko Paul breaks down Watsi's OGL and answers your legal questions. See you then.